morning, everybody. It's great to be here. I would have been here anyway. (laughs) But it's great to be up here. It's a little terrifying, but it's also great. Um, Thanks, Blake, for inviting me to speak. Um, Let's pray first. Lord, we just thank you for this day, for this beautiful day, beautiful day in the neighborhood, um, in our neighborhood. God, there's... Uh, there's trauma happening right now down at the Methodist Church. We just ask that you keep those firemen safe and uh, that you would contain the fire and, and keep the damage to a minimum, Lord. Um, we pray that you would bless this word today, bless your word as it goes out. And I just ask, God, that, that you would touch and heal and um, bless and comfort and bring back into relationship people who are here this morning. We just ask this in Jesus' name. Um, boy, I really had second thoughts about this message, especially this morning. And then I come out of my house. Because I'm going to talk about my burns, I was having second thoughts. And uh, <laughs> then I see the Methodist church on fire. And I thought, is that a sign, God? I don't know. <laughs> fire is merciless, but God is full of mercy. And uh, I hope that that's... If, if you don't hear anything else this morning, that you'll hear that from this message this morning. So um, I've really appreciated the messages on, on Daniel that Blake's been doing, and it's kind of cool that I get to kind of be the bookend on, on that because uh, when he was out with having their baby boy uh, and I got to speak, God said, hey, you know, what about Daniel chapter 3? You want to preach on that? And I said, I don't think so. <laughs> and he said, okay, okay. Do what you want to do. That's fine. I'll still be there. Um, I'll still use you. And, but then I got another opportunity, and God said, how about now? And I said, okay. Um, so let's turn our Bibles to Daniel chapter 3. We'll read verses 8 through through 18. <clears throat> this, is, this is the story about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The Nebuchadnezzar had made the golden statue, and then and somebody had tricked him into making a law that anyone who doesn't bow down and pray, they'd be tossed into a fiery furnace. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, being men of faith, did not bow down when the music played. And and then we, we bring the story to here. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold. And whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? 
Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand, but even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Um, They were willing to take the chance whether God would or would not deliver them from the furnace. Because they know that we serve a God who can work things out for good. In fact, in Romans eight twenty eight it says, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And that verse has become kind of my theme song for my life. Um, growing up, I was, I was a good kid, you know, as kids go. I was, I was okay. Better than average. I was a B plus. I was a B plus kid. If I'd worked harder, I could have been an A minus. Who wants to work that hard? <clears throat> anyway, so I, was, I, was, uh, I wasn't an unusual kid. I, was, I wanted to be a pastor from the time I was like three. I remember coming home from church and setting up an apple box as my pulpit and, and redoing the sermon that the pastor had said, given us on that, that Sunday. And uh, uh, I don't know if there were any altar calls. Of course, we were Lutheran, so that really wasn't a thing then. So. I was willing to go to church. I wanted to do the right thing. Um, I loved the Bible and, and the Bible heroes, um, like David Samson, Joshua, those guys, those are my heroes. My, my school-age friends had heroes like Superman and, um, you know, those guys. Lone Ranger, who was, who was popular at the time. I remember, so long ago. So long ago. Anyway, but that's my, you know, I was, I'm just trying to tell you, I was a good kid. I, I was, I thought I was okay with God. You know, me, me and him were, you know, we were okay. And then, then it happened. The winter of 1968 it was cold and snowy. It was uh, the Sunday after Thanksgiving, December 1st, 1968. Anybody remember the winter of 1968? That was a nasty winter. That was cold. It was a lot of snow. Well, um, my brother, my dad, and I all went down to uh, his place where he was working. He was building a car. He was building a 59 Chevy El Camino. Anybody know what that looks like? It was one of the cat taillights, yeah, uh, cat eye taillights, yeah, <clears throat> so anyway, he was building that, he did eventually finish the car, he put a 409 in it, and it could pass anything but a gas station, <laughs> yeah, that's for you, dad, yeah, <clears throat> so anyway, we were there, we were working on the car, <laughs> I was working on the car, um, my brother had just had just gone through something in school where they showed him the, how you could burn things to show the chemical properties they, were, they had in them. And we had enamel thinner and lacquer thinner there at the, at the shop because my dad was doing body work on the car. And so my brother took two Dixie cups full of uh, lacquer thinner. Oh, I missed one point here. I got ahead of myself. 
it was cold, so we had to fill up the, the, um, the heater, and the heater was powered by kerosene. So my brother and I went out. I held a bucket. He pumped out from the 55-gallon barrel into the bucket. The bucket splashed on me while I was filling, and so I got kerosene on me. Then the next thing we did was he got those two Dixie cups full of uh, flammable liquid. We went out behind the shop. He put them on the ground, lit them on fire, was showing me, you know, this one burns bulbo. But I thought I heard my dad coming, and I knew we would get in trouble, so I said, put them out, put them out. So he stomped on the first one, and it went out. He stomped on the second one, and it squirted a little flame over onto me. And I went, I was in flames. I was eight years old. Did I tell you that? I didn't tell you that. I was eight. My brother was 12. Um, so I was on fire. My brother told me to lay on the ground to roll around. And uh, I fell on the ground, but I didn't, I didn't roll around, and the flames were still burning, so he took his coat and put the fire out. So my brother was a hero. Um, my dad came out. He heard the commotion, came out, and tried to find out what was going on. Um, my brother was in shock, and all he could say was, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. And my dad had to slap him to get him to come back into reality, and he explained what happened. My dad tried to, tried to jump in the car and go to the hospital with me, but we couldn't get the car to start, so he called my mom. She came down from about a mile away, picked me up. We drove to the hospital. On the way there, my mom's car ran out of gas. <laughs> so <clears throat> we were stranded on the side of the road, and cars were backing up behind us, and... Um, a state patrolman came along and looked in the car and saw me and said, which hospital you want to go to? And my mom kind of explained what was going on, so we, we got rushed to the hospital. And by the time I got there, I had, when I found out, when I got there, they told me I had second and third degree burns on my face and my right hand, and the tip of my uh, right ear was burned a little bit too. Um, I spent 21 days in the hospital, and um, I don't want to complain, but... I, the recovery process of bur- being burned, the recovery process is much worse than the actual being burned. It's, it's not fun. So I uh, spent 21 days in the hospital. Um, I had a um, bunch of grafts done on my face, and when I got home, it kind of looked like a patchwork quilt a little bit. There were places that were still growing in. The skin was growing in. There was open. But anyway, I was home, and, and life seemed to go on. Well, as the scars started forming, and uh, um, it was, it was, it's hard to explain this part of it, but my, my parents and I never talked about my burns from now, you know, it was just like a, uh, the elephant in the room, I guess, um, and so I kind of went into this denial state of even having scars, and I, I wouldn't even think about, you know, what I looked like. Um, I do remember, however, one one afternoon I was watching an Elvis Presley movie. And once again, my hero Elvis got the girl. And I so- somehow realized that, man, a guy who looks like me is not going to get the girl. And I ran into my bedroom and cried and kind of prayed, prayed some kind of prayer. I said, oh God, please let me find a woman who can love me or something like that. And God hears the prayers of eight-year-old, old, eight-year-old little boys. Or I was probably 10 at the time. Well... <clears throat> Life, <clears throat> excuse me, life went on. My parents um, uh, leased a restaurant in Mount Freer, which was about 30 miles from where we were living in Pendleton. 
And the house hadn't sold yet, so we were kind of going back and forth between the two places. I lived in Milt Free Water. My dad still lived at the house in Pendleton. And one weekend, February 18th, 1972, we decided to go on a trip back home. And um, on the way there, my foster brother was driving. My little sister was sitting between me and my foster brother, Rod. And then my oldest sister, Kitty, was in the back seat. It was a crew cab and her boyfriend. And uh, we were pulling out to pass a car on this long hill. It was foggy and dark and cold and horrible weather. And as we pulled out, then we saw the oncoming car. And my foster brother tried to, Rod, he tried to pull over, but he couldn't get over in time. And so the car that was coming this way hit us, and the car that we were passing hit us. And the collision was so, had so much force in it that it pulled, it ripped the cab off of the truck, and and the cab was leaning out in the field, away from the frame, upside down. Um, When I came to, I was laying on the ceiling of the cab and looking up at the seats, and there was flashlights and everything, and people were coming around, and there was... um, trying to help us get out of the truck, and um, I tried to talk to them, and my, my lower jaw just felt like jello, and it turned out that my jaw had been broken in five places. My little sister had her wrist broken, my uh, sister Kitty had her ankle broken, my foster brother's leg was broken, and the worst off was my sister's boyfriend, he had, a, he had gone up and hit his head on the ceiling and cracked his skull all the way around, and he was pretty bad. Um, I was put in the, an ambulance with him, and while I was laying in the ambulance, I was started to panic. I just, I had, it was the worst fear I've ever experienced in my life. I was just completely consumed with fear. And um, I heard a voice in my head that said, Jesus is going to take care of you. And I went to sleep, and it was the best sleep I've ever had. Well, we got to the hospital, my mom found out about the accident and she headed to the hospital and she got there. I was on a gurney in the hallway and there were four doctors or four medical people working on me and they just kind of stopped working on me and went to the next person because I guess there had been 17 cars involved in the accident because of all the, you know, it was dark and cold and so there was a lot of people at the hospital. And, and they walked away as my mom walked over to me. She said, can I talk to him? And they said, it doesn't matter now. And she didn't know what that meant. So she went and started rubbing my leg, and I started coughing, and the doctor spun around and came back to me. And we found out later that when I, when I was on the gurney, I was clinically dead. I had no pulse, and I was not breathing. And I remember that scene from above my body. Um, that's all I remember. There's no lights or anything like that. I wish I had one of those cool stories that, you know, oh, I saw Grandpa, you know. <laughs> I don't have that story. But, so, um, they decided to fix my jaw. They were going to wire it shut. And that was the plan when I went into surgery. Um, but during surgery, or at the beginning of surgery, they had trouble with my scar tissue. It wouldn't stretch enough, so they couldn't get the wires in. So they had to put a plate in. And um, the plate is still there. It's right, it's right there. You can see it in x-rays. It's kind of cool. <coughs> it doesn't show up on metal detectors. I'm kind of disappointed. You know, I kind of wanted to do that thing where they, hey, you keep beeping. I don't know what's wrong with you. I have a steel plate in my jaw. 
bionic. Helps me eat better. <laughs> um, so I had a steel plate in my jaw. Now let's fast forward to my senior year in high school. Life had gone on. My parents kind of uh, were still kind of blase about the whole burn scar. It was still kind of an unspoken thing. And uh, I had finished all my high school credits, and, and there was a situation in my life where I just wanted to get out of town. So I decided to join the Air Force, and I had done really well on the ASVAB. They were very excited to get me. We were in the, in the house with my mom and dad, and sitting at the table, and we were filling out the paperwork, and he said, you know, the recruiters going, oh, you know, this is kind of a formality, but do you have any pins or plates or anything in your body? And I said, yeah, oh, yeah, I've got the steel plate in my jaw right here. And he said, oh, well, it was nice knowing you. <laughs> See ya. <laughs> so they weren't going to take me, and so I was stuck at home, stuck in, uh, stuck in Soap Lake. But we'll find out later that wasn't such a bad thing. <laughs> so let's go back to that Romans eight twenty eight, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. Does that verse say some things? Is it just some things? No, that's right. Well, you didn't let, I was going to say most things, and then you were just going to say, no. And then, I was, then we say, all say it together, all things, yeah. I didn't explain it to you before, so. Um, when, as I was doing this message, I started thinking about some of the Bible, Bible characters who had gone through something similar like to, to this, where they were not immediately rescued, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Like Joseph, he was sold into slavery in Genesis chapter 37. His brothers sold him into slavery. And then as a slave, he was sold into the house of Potiphar. And then from the house of Potiphar, uh, because he wouldn't sleep with his boss's wife, he ended up in prison. She falsely accused him of rape, and he ended up in prison. While he was in prison, he uh, interpreted the dreams of the, the butler and the baker. They had dreams, the but- and both of those dreams, the, Joseph's, Interpretations of the dreams came true, but still Joseph sat in prison for two years, waiting. And then, because of all that, though, because of the timeline, because God said, you know, da 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 da, because he did that, he was able to save the whole family of Jacob. And who was who was the son of Jacob that we are really mostly concerned with? Judah, because Judah is Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. And so, in a way, Joseph saved the lineage and the person and and the family that led to Jesus. So we're really grateful about that. Um, David, he was anointed king at age 15. Then he spent the next 15 years running from the current king. Um, He he had two different opportunities to to kill Saul and take take the throne by force. And he chose not to. He said, no, I can't do that. That's not right. So he waited 15 years to, to be king. While he was on the run, he wrote at least five psalms, 52, 54, 56, 57, and 59. And we know that his lineage, David's lineage, Solomon gave birth to Rehoboam, Rehoboam, his, and all that from on, on down, eventually, is Jesus. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love him and called according to his purpose. We know that even though David was on the run from from King Saul, that God used that for the good. 
John the Baptist. This is a hard one for me because I don't really fully understand the, the way John's life ended. But in, in uh, Matthew 11, John was in prison. He sent some of his guys to ask Jesus, are you the one or should we wait for somebody else? And, um, and I think the reason he asked that is because of, of the prophetic passage in Isaiah 61 about the Messiah, he has sent me to comfort the brokenhearted and proclaim that captives will be released and prisoners will be freed. And it was like John was saying, um, when can I expect you? <laughs> I'm in prison. When are you coming? Like I said, I'm not really sure how that, how that, how the good of it comes comes about. I mean, you know, the other ones are obvious. But one thing that we can we can be grateful for is that Jesus didn't use, didn't become, Jesus' ministry didn't become a political thing, where he set political prisoners free. He set prisoners free who are prisoners to sin and to death, like me and like you. The next example I have is Paul in prison. And I'm not sure this example works because no matter where Paul was, he just made church happen. Um, we have the example of him and, and Silas in Philippi and they're chained to a wall and Paul looked over at, at Silas and said, hey, what time is it? And Silas looks at his uh, wrist, <laughs> wrist sundial and says, oh, it's 6.30. Paul says, well, it's time for church. Let's go. Okay, everybody, sing along if you know it. And, and away, away they had church. Um, the church in Philippi got started that night, even though Paul was in jail, because he got set free. And it was because of what happened to him, not because he got out of it. So, well, he was shaken loose, I guess you could say. <laughs> the last, last example I have is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, three different times. It was the night that he was, he was betrayed. He went to the garden and he prayed. And he said, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. That's from Matthew 26. We are all blessed because God did not take that cup away from Jesus. Jesus was willing to do whatever it took to redeem us. And that meant that he was going to be beaten, that he was going to be whipped, that he was going to be hit, that he was going to be spit on, that he was going to wear a crown of thorns. I heard this week, I've never heard it before, uh, that the crown of thorns, when they pulled it off, just sliced his face. He was almost like, like his face came off. Um, he's, it's described, I think it's in Isaiah, where it says he didn't even look like I'm human. He was so beaten. He didn't even look human. We didn't recognize him as a human. So anyway, God works all things together for the good. Jesus' suffering was for my good, for our good. The kingdom's good. God has a bigger picture. Uh, we are to build the kingdom. And, and that's what Jesus said right before he left um, he said, go and make disciples of all the world. And we have, because of this 
in this kingdom, we have a different set of rules. We have um, the two greatest commandments that Jesus left with us. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, love the Lord God with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And he said, love your neighbor as yourself. And in John 13, 34, Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you, so you also must love one another. Well, then we think, how did Jesus love? He, were, he loved in words. Yes, I mean, it's pretty easy to love in words. But he also loved in actions. He loved us to death. He loved us to his death. When did he start loving me? We know that in Romans 5, 8, it says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He loved us first. And so that's how we're supposed to be loving other people. I'm going to turn a little bit of a corner here now. I'm going to talk, well, we'll just keep going. But you're going to see a little thing going on. Um, I work for MLI, Moses Lake Industries, and we built two plants in China. I got to go on a lot of those trips to build those plants. And um, what they would do is they they hired a bus, and they would throw all of us construction guys in the bus, and we would ride from the hotel to the work site, and then we'd ride the bus back. And it was kind of like an anthropological, zoo-ish kind of experience to watch the culture, the Chinese culture, from the inside of a bus. It was kind of like you were driving by, and you have seen all kinds of, of strange and wonderful things. Like one time we saw a donkey pulling a cart. When, you know, driving down the road with all, you know, eight lanes of traffic, here's a donkey in a cart, and you know, guys... I, uh, one time I saw a scooter, and I saw, you know, usually you used to seeing two people on a scooter, and it was raining. Well, the man was driving the scooter, and, and I'm assuming it was his wife behind him, and in front of him, standing on the little floorboards of the scooter, was his son. And then I, I kept watching him, and I thought, I thought I saw something funny between the husband and the wife, and it turned out that there was a baby <laughs> in between the wife and the husband. I'm not sure if she was nursing, but I think she may have been. I mean, that, that was <laughs> not something you'd see in the U.S. Um, there was a lot of things. There was, uh, there'd be trucks completely full. The trucks so heavy that the front tire was bouncing, and they were heavy with people. They were all riding to work on these little three-wheel trucks. So anyway, we would use those times to, to watch the culture, and sometimes... Um, the guys would laugh at whatever they saw. And uh, I tried not to laugh, but there was one time that I was, I, you know, I, st- I joined in the laughter because I don't remember what we saw, but it was funny. Oh, there was one other thing. There was a man that we got on a train one time, and uh, I saw this man holding a toilet like this. You ever, you ever picked up a toilet? They're not, they're not light. They're probably 50 pounds. So he was holding the toilet, standing in a bus, or in a, on a train, <laughs> holding the toilet. And he just happened to get out when we got out, and I watched him walk down the street holding his toilet. And he had the biggest smile on his face. It's like that was the greatest thing he'd ever gotten. And, you know, that's not something you'd see every day. It has nothing to do with the sermon. That's just kind of a freebie. Well, I was convicted that time when I was laughing at, at these people that were outside the bus. And, and God said, you know, I love these people. 
and I, I was convicted. They, these people, they didn't look like me, they didn't act like me, they didn't talk like me, didn't eat like me, didn't believe like me, and yet God said, I love these people. Today is Compassion Sunday. And we have an opportunity today. I know that compassion is just one of many, many ministry opportunities that we have. But today we have compassion here in the church. We have packets out there in the hallway. Um, Mary and I got into compassion about 19 years ago. We started with one child, Hebrew. He was four when we, when we started. And uh, he just graduated out of the program at t- age 22 last August. We, we, we also wanted to sponsor a girl, and so we sponsored Misra, and she graduated, I think, two years ago. Uh, we now have three children. Uh, we have Pracy, who is 14. She, um, she lives with her grandmother. We've been sponsoring her since she was seven. We also sponsor Miharet. Miharet is 11. She lives in Ethiopia. She lives with her mother. We've been sponsoring her since she was five. Our latest child to sponsor is Kamama. He is eight years old and lives in Kenya with his mother. This little guy, the way he helps his parents is he carries firewood and water. That just blesses me. (laughs) And it also humbles me because I don't have to carry water. I turn on my spigot and water comes out. I don't have to carry firewood to heat and cook with. I turn on a, bo- a knob. But this little guy, he helps his parents by carrying water. Um, you can't sponsor these three because they're ours. <laughs> However, today and today only, no, actually, hopefully we can do this for this week and next week. Um, we have packets. We have 20 kids out there. I don't have their pictures for you to show you up here, but... Um, they, they range in age from little Jam Jam from the Philippines, who will be three on August 2nd. And the oldest one that we have today is Fatima, who is from Peru, who will turn 21 on September 30th later this year. So if you, wanted, if you want a short-term kind of thing, I would, I would sponsor Fatima. She's only going to be in the program for about a year and a couple months. Um, just flipping through the list, I, there was also Eslane, just turned eight in March. She's from East Indonesia. Agia will be five next month. She's been waiting for a sponsor for 427 days. Um, then I missed one. The, uh, the actual youngest one in our group is Nicole from Bolivia. She turned two in February. And it's kind of sad because in her packet picture, she looks like she's about to cry, which makes me want to cry. I was going to read about her. Project B00621. Liro de los Valles, Lily of the Valley, Student Center. Uh, From Bolivia. Your sponsored child lives in Sacamani, a rural community in the eastern zone of the city of Ururo, that is home to about 5,000 people. Spanish is the primary language. Typical houses are constructed of dirt floors, mud brick walls, and corrugated tin roofs. The regional diet consists of bread, 
cereal, potatoes, and wheat. Most adults in Sokomani have, ha- have only a primary education and make a living as bricklayers, street vendors, day laborers, farmers, or domestic servants. Most families raise rabbits or chickens for food. The average family income is equivalent to $217 per month. $217 per month. Your sponsorship allows the staff of Lirio de los Valles Student Center to provide your sponsored child with health screening, hygiene, and basic life skill training, school supplies, tutoring, contests, career guidance, vocational training, athletics, cultural and birthday celebrations, and community service opportunities. The center staff will also provide celebrations for the parents or guardians of your sponsored child. The Compassion's work in Bolivia began in 1975. Currently, more than 92,700 children participate in our holistic program in more than 230 child development centers. Compassion works with church church partners to provide Bolivian children with the opportunity to rise above their circumstances and become all God has created them to be. So that is Nicole from Bolivia. Just one of 20 children that we have to sponsor. Um, I'll be back at the table to help you guys if you want to sponsor a child today. I don't want to hype you in sponsoring. I, I'm not going to be here and, you know, woohoo, let's go, let's go, go. And I'm not going to guilt you in sponsoring. I'm just going to say, listen to the Holy Spirit. If He's talking to you, go grab a kid, make a difference. It costs $38 a month to sponsor a child. Okay, now back to my story. Got about two minutes or three minutes left here, sorry. So, <clears throat> I, was, I left you with me being re- rejected by the Air Force. And I didn't tell you why I wanted to join the Air Force. Well, it was about a girl. <laughs> uh, Mary and I met when she was 13 and I was 14. And we dated, became friends and first, and then we started dating, and we dated through high school up to my senior year. And then we, were, we broke up. And while we were apart, she went to Jesus Northwest. Someone, someone mentioned you. You mentioned Jesus Northwest this morning. That was a great, a great experience. Have you, did you ever? No? Okay. So any, anybody Jesus Northwest? Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. It was a fun time. Great, great ministry. So she went to Jesus Northwest and got saved. And, but she also met another boy. <laughs> and uh, so I just wanted to get out of town. And I thought, well, let's join the Air Force and get the heck out of here. Did I, can I say heck in church? I'm sorry. <laughs> but because of the accident I was in where I had a broken jaw, I had a steel plate. I had a steel plate because I was burned when I was eight and the scar tissue. So it was like a chain of events that led me to not go to the Air Force. And um, because I stayed home, eventually, even though we were broken up, I saw her one day. I saw Mary in her big blue Dodge and I thought, 
you know, I'm still pretty fond of her. So I asked her out, and she said yes, and we went to the movie Superman, and our lives were changed forever. That night, we decided to get back together, and, and we decided to get married. We did get married. I got, uh, we got pregnant on our honeymoon with Aaron, um, which changed our, our lives in another way. I, I ended up quitting college. I was going to college to become a Lutheran pastor. And uh, after I came back home, I got saved, then I got filled with the Holy Spirit, and then we started looking for a church where we could actually worship and um, experience the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We came to this weird little church called Euphrates Foursquare Church. It was actually, yeah, it wasn't Foursquare Church yet, it was Euphrates, uh, well, I, I can't remember what it was called. Euphrates Christian Center, yeah. And so we came to this weird little church in 1984, and we're still here. Uh, my scars led me to Jesus in the most roundabout way. My scars put me together with my wife in another roundabout way. My scars have brought me blessings. I want to leave with two verses that we focused on, Romans 8:28, And we know that in all things, God works together for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. And then Daniel 3, 16 through 18, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image you have set up. Truth is, I don't know if I ever asked God to remove my scars. I don't know if I actually said that prayer. Because I was thinking it was his mistake and he needs to fix it. It fixed me. God never did remove my scars because he had a plan for them. God's power is limitless. He has a plan for each one of us here and will somehow weave what we see as problems into his plan uh, to, to bless the kingdom and enlarge the kingdom. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just, we just want to thank you again for this day. Uh, thank you for this opportunity to be here with, with these fine, fine folks and be part of this church, Lord. Um, we just pray that you would take this word to our heart. God, if, if you're prompting someone to sponsor a child through, through compassion, I just ask that you would um, bubble that thing up, make it happen, Lord. Be, be effervescent in that, Lord. And we just ask this in Jesus' name.